But really, in my opinion, it's an appeal or a reflection back to us at the end of the day. It's not that it's necessarily authentic. And I don't think that one group can like own authenticity. I think authenticity, uh, especially within specialty coffee, is ultimately an appeal to authority. Welcome to the Daily Coffee Pro by Mapper Forward, friends. I'm your host, Lee Safar. This is sadly the last episode of a five-part series which has been a very, very interesting conversation. I love these kinds of conversations where we're talking about the deep nuance in a subject and our subject is tasting coffee. And in the last episode, we were talking about the power dynamics um, in play when it comes to taste and how it impacts the supply chain. And we talked predominantly about the consuming, the sorry, producing end of the supply chain. There is a second part of that because in this episode, to wrap up this series, we're talking about how can we reimagine taste in coffee. Now, Costa, when we look at how we're reimagining things, help us before we get there, understand where this power dynamic exists on the consuming end of the supply chain. Yeah, you know, it's um I think it I think more or less it's it still exists w- with the same people. You know, okay. it's it's the tastemakers in the middle predominantly. Um, you know, I think um if I think of like p- in political economic terms, you know, it's roasters who end up controlling the market. Um and the way that that is structurally put together is by having like an oversupply of coffee. Um, that's an oversupply of commercial coffee. And I think that's an oversupply of just specialty coffee in general. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, me working, you know, for, um, Algrano, you know, for example, or, or even like my previous employer, um, you know, I'm one of a hundred green sellers for every green buyer there is. Mm -hmm. Um, and it really gives a lot of, um, control, you know, for green buyers to basically pick and choose, you know, who they, who they want to work with. Most green buyers get to choose, you know, the type of coffee they want, um, when they want it, how they want it, where they want it, just about any time that they want it. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the same way, they're the ones who end up getting to basically control, you know, defining what is good to the consumer and what isn't good to the consumer and how they should consume that coffee and how they shouldn't consume that coffee. Mm-hmm. And certainly there can be a power play, you know, between, you know, the consumer and the roaster, um, you know, and it can ebb and flow in the same way, like it can ebb and flow between producers and roasters, you know, or, or producers and intermediaries in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but for me, it's still, we're still looking at tastemakers more or less being able to define what quality is and what quality isn't. I got into an Uber yesterday and um, the person, he, the driver said to me, you know, what do you do? And I told him I was in coffee and he, and he said to me, you know, I've got an interesting story. I never used to drink coffee. I'm a tea drinker. He said, but now I drink a coffee every day. I'm like, how did that happen? You know, this is like market research for me, trying to understand what people do in the market and what helps them make buying decisions around coffee. Yeah. And he said, I picked up a passenger one day and she asked me to drive to a 7-Eleven. She had to get her coffee on the way to work. So... She bought a coffee and she bought one for me. Mm. And he said, and it was amazing. So I went back and bought another one the next day. And I was so angry with her because this was starting to become a habit. Mm -hmm. And he said, now I buy one every day. I'm like, what do you drink? And he said, a cappuccino with four sugars. Mm -hmm. I said to him, why don't you 
buy that coffee in a cafe. It would be a much more enjoyable experience. Then you'd get to meet the barista and have conversations with the barista. And if you go to a special cafe every time, you build a community. And he said, they judge me for the four sugars. Mm, yeah. Now the whole thing around taste and power mm. on the consuming end becomes about a completely separate commodity than the coffee yeah. itself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a fun paper, um, that I like it's, <laughs> it's on taste and more like consumer focused. Um, it's called, uh, bivalent class indexing, um, uh, okay. by, I uh, don't understand uh, what any of those words mean. I will break it down. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's from a sociolinguist. Um, and it's basically this idea of, you know, building words in order to, uh, try to, basically build a bridge between two different value systems. Okay. Um, and so within specialty coffee, it occupies um, values based like two very uncomfortable situations. You know, one which is like fine taste and the other is progressive values. And okay. so like, you know, fine taste is historically been synonymous with aristocracy. Mm -hmm. It's it's upper middle class, you know, 1% type shit. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, it has this juxtaposition of wanting to champion for the little guy um mm -hmm. and the way that it makes this very uncomfortable ne negotiation is an appeal to authenticity this is how you're supposed to drink it mm -hmm. and then there's there's another there's a book uh by amanda lucia which is uh it's titled white utopias and it's about um festivals like burning man mm -hmm. and you know, it's a study of why are all these white people, you know, getting involved in practices that tend to be, you know, around like the global south or by indigenous peoples. Um, and they also use appeal to authenticity. This is how you authentically practice, you know, this practice. And she breaks down that auth uh, authenticity is it basically derives from the idea of authority or power. You know, it's the ability for one group of people to say, this is the correct way to do this thing. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially, you know, what we're doing uh, within specialty coffee. You know, we're appealing to this idea of authenticity, you know, either through and, and through, in my opinion, um, you know, using scientific language, um, through using measurements, through using words like objectivity. And these are ways to go ahead and appeal to like, the authenticity of drinking coffee, the best way to drink coffee, the way that we want to consume coffee or grow coffee or process coffee or roast coffee. But really, in my opinion, it's an appeal or a reflection back to us at the end of the day. It's not that it's necessarily authentic. And I don't think that one group can like own authenticity. I think authenticity, uh, especially within specialty coffee is ultimately an appeal to authority. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Mapper Forward's first on-demand workshop, How to Become a Coffee Consultant, available now online for you to learn at your own pace with a certificate available upon completion. Click the link in the show notes to access today for just 50 euros. And like when you have either producers or those like coming from the working class, what you end up doing is completely obfuscating and then, you know, putting them to the wayside and say like, well, they just don't understand how to drink coffee. And really, you know, what they're ignoring is like, I don't want to like, I don't want to be told what to do. Um, you know, and I don't know that type of rejection, I think is, is honestly quite inspiring. It, it's an interesting power dynamic 
because at the end of the day, the person who owns the business that's selling to the consumer, they get to do whatever the fuck they want, whether the producer wants it or not, right? Like that's the ultimate power in inverted commas. That's that's where it sits. What I think is an interesting power play is the way that 7-Eleven approaches this versus the way that Specialty Coffee approaches this. 7-Eleven, I continue to ask that Uber driver more questions. He said, and, and when, then it went around price. So the, the, the relationship between price and taste. So here's this guy that has decided, he's like, I need to add four sugars because the coffee doesn't taste any good on its own. And it's a buck 99. And it makes me feel good. Yeah. If I buy it in a cafe, I'm going to spend more money. They're going to judge me because it's got sugar in it. And on top of that, I have to listen to them talk to me about stuff that I don't want to have to listen to them talk to me about. Now, all of a sudden, you're starting to realize that the power dynamic around people's purchasing uh, decisions has very little to do with the taste of the coffee. It's the relationship that they have to the cup that they've and and the the experience that they're having of this thing. Yeah, right. Which then makes you wonder, like, what role does taste play in our industry? Yeah. And are we as an industry putting too much emphasis on the role that taste plays, and yeah. not enough emphasis on the experience that's being had by the end consumer? Yeah, you know, and I would I would almost put it this way, you know, like what we've tried to focus on is what taste is, you know, and I think mm. ultimately, you know, it's not what taste is, it's what taste does. Taste is a performance, taste is a choreography, you know, taste is, you know, not universal. Um, it can have class elements to it. Um, you know, it can certainly have cultural elements to it. And mm -hmm. to your Uber driver, it wasn't tasteful. The, you know, like we have attempted to basically say that like taste is this one thing. It's the commodity itself. You know, mm -hmm. that's what quality is. We don't think of quality in terms of expediency or, you know, ease of use. Um, and in certain classes, you know, or in certain cultures, like that could mean quality. And, you know, if I go ahead and borrow like David Graeber's idea you know, of what like a commodity is, like the commodity, what a commodity is, in my opinion, is it's a secondary process. And ultimately, what we're producing and reproducing are social relations, the types of people that we want to have around. And if I look at especially coffee, you know, it makes me question what type of people do we want to have around us? And, you know, that goes on the consuming end, but that also goes on the producing end. And what I see over and over again is that we want producers to be poor. We want to teach producers how to taste. And in the same way, you know, I think that's the type of consumer that we want. We want someone who kind of wants to be talked down to in a way. Uh, we want them to be wealthy enough. Um, and we want them to like look and feel and act like us. And so it just makes me question, you know, um, if we think of taste as a performance, what are different ways that we could imagine different performances? You know, it doesn't have to be this way. Like, I think we're just making up life as it is. And if that's the case, then like, what are different ways to go ahead and either push back on it or, you know, imagine new ways? I, to push back on that a little bit, I think what it sounds like you're saying is that 
we're looking, well, there's the opportunity to look at this as commerce and capitalism. And there's this other element to this, which is the real life artisan and agricultural aspect, the romance Mm -hmm. side of this. And what is the ratio of commerce capitalism to agriculture romance? And perhaps that dance is being done differently based on which industry in inverted commas you're in and what part of the supply chain that you're in. And perhaps the the producer would like to see a little more, this is a question, this is not a statement. Perhaps, and what I'm wondering is, do you believe that the producer would benefit more from a little more romance being sprinkled onto it and less commerce? And yeah. on the con- is is that what you're saying? No, 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 no. And I, I do think that, like, you know, life is made up of values and we're constantly juggling, you know, which values are m- more important in which context. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and and certainly, I think there's been a realignment of values when it, it you know, when it comes to purchasing coffees. You know, pre and post pandemic. Like mm-hmm. my experience, if we think of values around like price is one value. You know, commerce that could be a value system in mm-hmm. itself. Uh, quality or taste could be you know a value system in itself. Transparency could be a value system in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and depending on what life or structures are demanding of us, we tend to like try to rearrange those values on like Mm -hmm. what's most important at the end of the day. Mm. Um, I would certainly not argue, um, you know, producers need to look more like um, people in the global North and, and be artisans um, like at all. Um, You know, I Mm -hmm. think at the end of the day, like they should just have the dignity, you know, of like they produced something, they worked hard and they should get paid fairly for it. Right. Um, You know. And and what I'm saying is that is there the disrespect, is is there the potential that the factual kind of or the, the kind of sterile commerce approach to what they do? the offensive part of this. Mm. No, I don't know. I don't, I don't think, I don't think it's the, like, I mean, commerce could be insulting you know, as much as I think taste can be insulting. Right. Um, yeah. So to me, it's, it's more around ideas of dignity, quality, and consensus making, you know, when we're, mm-hmm. when we're talking about, you know, trying to make taste objective um, or even economics objective, you know, in my, my opinion, we could, we could do it a few different ways. Like we could do it hierarchical, you know, Mm -hmm. we could have experts tell us what things should be or shouldn't be, but you know, maybe another way to do it is around consensus making. What do you, you know, like we're coming around the same thing, such as coffee. What if producers have the ability to go ahead and define for themselves, you know, what they think that it is along with roasters. Can they both cup at the cupping table? And for example, instead of it being silent, both of them are talking at the same time. Or, you know, maybe a roaster ends up using, um, you know, the indigenous produce, uh, like fruits, vegetables, and botanicals of like that region to go ahead and describe their coffee back to like where they live. Um, What do you think the practical application of those suggestions would be? Yeah, so this is a a great one. So um, thankfully coffee... um, 
is a roaster that worked with El Grano this year with a producer out of Guatemala, mm -hmm. um, Apollo. And um, there was a conversation that ended up happening on Instagram um, with a friend of mine. Her name is Camila. And please forgive me, Camila. I forgot your last name. Don't hurt me. <laughs> And um, she basically, posted, she had this really thoughtful post about like, why don't people in the global north end up using descriptors, you know, that are found in the global south? Or, you know, if producers are using descriptors found in the global south, why isn't it considered just as um, valid or useful? And so um, Alex from Thankfully ended up asking this question, you know, hey, I own a, um, a small roaster retailer you know, what can I do? And Camila ended up making the suggestion of like, just tell them what the producers think of the coffee. And what he ended up doing online is basically creating two lines, you know, what they think of the coffee and then what the producers think of the coffee. And to me, I feel like that pays an homage, you know, to the producers themselves. And it also says that like different cultures and different people can taste the same coffee and come to different um, you know, conclusions, and it's also still worthwhile to go ahead and serve. Not one actor gets to simply own what something is or isn't at the end of the day. And to me, you know, that could be an example of sharing power, you know, between a producer and roaster. What happens if they're not roasting the same? Oh, man. Um, like the producer and the roaster? So what happens if the roaster is roasting a super dark roast because that's what their consumers like and the producer is roasting light roast yeah i don't know if it makes a difference at the end of the day you know what? and not to say that there's I mean, the flavor profile is going to be completely different sure 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 but i mean this this is what i'm trying to say i could send the same coffee with the same roast profile to 12 different roasters and get 10 different answers right and i've experienced that on a, like a daily basis right none of them are wrong at the end of the day. And I right. accept their realities as, as it is. And so I think what I'm trying to say here is, you know, like <laughs> in the same way, even if we have the same coffee, it's likely that we're going to end up tasting different things mm -hmm. and to attempt to qualify it, you know, based off of like a light roast or a dark roast. Yeah. There's going to be different experiences with it. Like, no question about it. To mm. me, it's more of a question of, you know, are we willing to accept people's differences or are we going to say that, like, one group of people gets to define something for everyone else? What a perfect place to end this series. <laughs> Thank you so much for a Thank really you. interesting and engaging conversation. Um, let people know, where can they find you? Yeah, uh, Instagram, my handle is Espresso Patronus. Um, I'm also the US sales manager for Algrano. So mm -hmm. you can find me on Algrano's page. Um, and my email is costa at algrano.com. Beautiful. Seriously, thank you. This was a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. We sign off every episode with Peace, Love and Peanut Butter. Would you sign this episode, our final episode of the series off for everybody? Yeah. Peace, love, and peanut butter. Have an amazing rest of your day, everyone. <laughs> Bye. Thank you. <laughs>
Thanks for tuning in, friends. There are two ways you can support this podcast. Firstly, become a paid member of our YouTube channel. Secondly, you can join our Patreon for as little as $3 a month. Both have options for exclusive ad-free content and early release content. Don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. The Daily Coffee Pro is produced by Map It Forward and the music you're listening to is called Run 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 off of my album Laundry After Midnight. To get older episodes of this podcast, as well as more information on Map It Forward, head to mapitforward.coffee. You can find links and more information in the show notes below.